Morning, church. Good to see everybody. Someone after first service described their experience as going from uh, first class seating to coach. (laughs) Yeah, but it's good to see everybody and good to see people's faces. Appreciate the patience that I I feel that we're having with one another as we navigate a difficult season. Um, Masks, no masks, right? So you go into a store these days and so I was like, what are we doing in this store, right? What's the goal here? And so, if you're a guest, my name is Kelly. Glad you're here. Hope you feel quickly at home. Can you finish this phrase with me? It's like taking candy from a baby. Yeah, it's a well-known phrase. And the phrase is aimed at um, noting how simple an act is, right? The simplicity of a task. It's like taking candy from a baby. You've got this. You can do this, right? But you think about the phrase itself. It's not a particularly nice, ethically speaking, phrase, right? Stealing candy from a kid. It's not nice. Paul Piff, a social psychologist at the University of Southern California, Berkeley, turned this phrase into a social experiment in which he set out to see if wealthy folks are more ethical than poor folks. And so what he did was he, he invited folks into a laboratory experience and he took down all types of data about them, some of which was their income, their status in life, socially, their income. And then he would give them a jar of candy, individually wrapped candies. And so they're left holding this jar of candy while the researcher uh, comes and goes from the room. They don't know it, uh, but the research is really about their disposition towards the candy. And here's the trick. They're told that the candy is for some kids down the hall. And, but the researchers coming and going from the room, asking them a series of questions. They think the research is about something else, but they're asked to hold this, this jar of candy. And told it's for kids down the hall. And what he learned was that the wealthier the person, the more they're disposed to helping themselves to the kid's candy. That there was a, a correlation, at the very least, between their wealth and their helping themselves to candy that was meant for kids down the hall. And in case you think that wealthy people just have a sweeter tooth, he went on to, provide, uh, to, to do some other research. Uh, one that I found particularly convicting was uh, how wealthy people drive their cars. So he set himself up at an intersection and he noted the relative expense of the car and the behaviors at the inter- intersection. So those with really nice cars, high-end cars, were consistently not giving way to pedestrians and wouldn't even obey traffic laws. But the, the less expensive cars uh, would more fall in line with traffic laws and give way to others. And he, he kept pressing it. He, he set up another uh, research scenario in which he invited people into a laboratory and they would push a button. And when they would push the button, it would roll dice for them, so to speak. Okay, picture in your mind's eye kind of a lottery machine where dice would be rolled. If the dice rolled for them, tallied uh, a number greater than 12, then they got a $50 gift card. 
And so he took down information about them, invited them into the laboratory. And what he found was, fascinating, those who made over $250,000 a year were more disposed to lie about the tallies of their dice. Because the researcher would step out of the room, he'd say, all right, well, hit the button. Tell me how many times your dice roll uh, tally to greater than 12, the dice you roll. And if you match this number, then you'll get a $50 gift card. And he said, I'm going to step out of the room and you do the research. And when he came back, what he found was those who made more than 250 grand a year lied about how many times their dice actually added up to 12 so that they could have the $50 gift card. And you'd think, right? You'd think people making greater than 250000 a year, that 50 buck gift card is a relatively small amount for them. But that's not at all what the research bore out. They wanted the $50. Here's the summary of Piff's investigation. He had others as well. He wrote, increased wealth and status in society lead to increased self-focus and in turn decreased compassion, altruism, and ethical behavior. Of course, le left unanswered is key correlation causation questions, right? Are rich people more likely to be selfish, or are selfish people more likely to be rich? And his research doesn't get at that. And I realize that probably no one here has had the opportunity to review Paul Piff's, his name, his research. So you may be skeptical about the findings, but I raise the findings not to convince us about his research, but to note that his research lines up with Jesus' teaching, his findings. So you could go and research Paul Piff's research. You can go see if you think his findings are spot on. But what I want to point out is that his findings support Jesus' teachings with regard to money. Last week, we looked at these verses. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Do you remember, it's, it's, it's easier for some people to enter the kingdom of God than others. I shared a little bit, maybe you were in that service last week, where... I noted my father's intellect. I actually felt like his intellect got in the way of his trust because we enter the kingdom of God as little children. Jesus says that our money can actually be a barrier to our entering the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it so hard for rich people to get into heaven? Because we're tempted to depend upon the money in our bank accounts rather than in childlike faith, depend upon Jesus. Wealthy, wealthy people are, are tempted to look to their money for life, for filling, for resource, as their primary resource, rather than looking in childlike dependency, because that's how we enter the kingdom of God. Unless you enter as a little child, you'll not enter. Rather than looking to God his provision in Christ in a childlike capacity, saying, I'll depend upon you. You're my primary resource, not my bank account. We're tempted, in other words, to, to act with increased self-interest, self-focus, to use Paul Piff's words, decreased compassion, altruism, and ethical behavior. We're tempted to make ourselves the focus of life rather than God. Now, while this reality is scary, I think, for residents of DuPage County, I think it's scary because, you know, DuPage County is one of the, the wealthiest counties globally. 
there is real hope. Last week, if you're here, you remember at the tail end of Luke 18, Jesus meets with a, a rich young ruler, or a rich ruler. And when Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, give all that you have to the poor, come follow me. And he goes away very sad, it says, because he was very wealthy. And you can, you can feel as though, well, in fact, the disciples say, who then can be saved? That's their response about how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God for wealthy folks. Because in the ancient world, in the first century, your wealth was thought to be a direct reflection of the blessing of God on your life. Surely the wealthy are, are, will get into the kingdom of God. Surely the wealthy are, have God's favor. Surely the wealthy... Just look at their wealth. They've got to be blessed. Surely they'll be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus flips that on his head. He says, no, it's actually very difficult for wealthy folks to enter the kingdom of heaven. Their wealth gets in the way of it. Because they make themselves the center of all things <laughs> rather than making God. But there's hope. Today, Luke chapter 19, turn with me there if you would in your copy of the scripture. And we meet with a man who's very wealthy and does not go away very sad. Actually, he says, all right, I'm ready to take the wealth, my wealth off the throne of my life. I, I'm ready to make Jesus the king of all things and put Jesus at the center. And so we see here today a beautiful story of God's grace and redemption in one man's life. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, I'll read them. They'll be on the screen as well. Follow along in your copy of the scripture. This man moves from greedy and selfish to generous and compassionate. Well-known story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, <laughs> he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. And I love this. He doesn't, he doesn't provide reasons or excuses for his behavior. He says, look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. In other words, the crowd says, they, they mumble to themselves, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus doesn't defend himself. Jesus said to him in response, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Do you know that God is seeking us? He longs to save us from ourselves. As I work to explain this story, let me remind us uh, that we have a podcast. Uh, tomorrow is the 200th episode of the podcast. Four years we've been recording the podcast. I know that some of you guys are res regular listeners. We missed the last couple weeks. Uh, we'll record tomorrow. If you have questions about today's passage in general, faith, uh, specifically, whatever, text them in to the number there on the screen, and we'll do our best to answer them. It's a, it's a delight. 
to record the podcast, it, it really grows us in our faith as we work to answer these questions. So what would move a wealthy and dishonest man to change his behavior, moving him from greedy and selfish to compassionate and generous, even committing to give half of all his possessions to the poor and to pay back four times what he'd stolen? It's interesting, right? The people, the crowd says Jesus has gone to, uh, to be uh, in the house, the guest in the home of a sinner, and he doesn't defend himself. He actually uh, talks about how he's going to handle his sin going forward. What would bring this type of change in a person's life? To answer this question, let's get to know Zacchaeus a little bit uh, better. I, this is a well-known story. I'm, I'm assuming many of you have heard this story, even from childhood in some cases. It was a part of my childhood as I went to Sunday school. I remember the wee little man who climbed the sycamore fig tree. There were songs about it. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus is, uh, was a chief tax collector and that he was wealthy, a little bit redundant. Tax collectors were generally wealthy. Chief tax collectors would certainly be wealthy. Uh, tax collectors made their living by collecting tax for the Roman government. In other words, if X was the tax they were to collect from each Israelite household, then tax collectors would work to collect 2X or 3X if they were really good at it. Being a chief tax collector meant he was really good at it, that he was good at extorting money. He was good at putting the screws to families so that he could get more for himself. He had uh, been elevated to the, to the status of chief tax collector because he had proven successful in this endeavor. Remember, Israel was an occupied territory at this time. They were not self-governing. Rome governed uh, Israel, and they often recruited Israelites to collect taxes. And so this means Zacchaeus was really good, not simply at collecting taxes generally, but putting his own countrymen to the screws as he extorted them, trying to get more money out of them. So he was a traitor as well, working for Rome, getting rich, in the process and actually strengthening the oppression of Rome over Israel. So he wasn't, he wasn't a beloved man in Jericho. You might think that Zacchaeus lived pretty contentedly, right? That would be my disposition. I would see someone wealthy with social standing and having the protection of Rome, and I would think they must, they must love life. They must feel <clears throat> good about their life. Social status, security, wealth. A certain amount of insulation comes with wealth, right? We're insulated from uh, things going on around us and difficulties that others face because of their uh, poverty. You'd think he'd be really good, set, at ease, at peace. It's not the case. In fact, we know it's not the case because this man with social status and wealth was also a tree climber. In fact, I would, tr I would challenge us to be honest with ourselves. We're all tree climbers. We all have a tendency to run after certain things thinking they're going to fill us, and then they don't. So in an effort to see if God will fill us, right, we begin seeking. He's a seeker. He wants to see this rabbi as he comes through town. He's heard about him. Everybody had heard about him. And so he climbs a tree. There's a fair bit of desperation in this tree climbing act. For me, I remember feeling desperate, even as a young boy. Uh, 12 years old, parents had divorced, my home of origin was in chaos. I remember feeling like some real desperation as I looked for answers. Where's the solid rock? 
In fact, when, when I share my faith and I know that I've got under 15 seconds to share it, I say that Christ is the rock that proved immovable when my family was falling apart. It's my elevator evangelism speech. You got 15 seconds. I had a desperate season. In fact, I, I feel like it makes sense that most of us, when we find Christ, we're in that desperate season. In fact, wealth can insulate us from that desperate moment. Someone shared with me this week, said, uh, I don't, they were from out of town, uh, said, I don't think it would be very easy to be a minister in DuPage County. I said, well, it's got its blessings and its challenges, right? He goes, yeah, I just, I think that money insulates us from sensing our need for Christ. I think that's for certain. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying here. It's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom because they can insulate themselves against a lot of pain and difficulty. My dad was not a believer for most of his life. He said to me once, as he was pushing back on my urging him to follow Christ, he, he said, uh, Kelly, you know, money can't buy happiness. Sure can make you comfortable in your misery. That's what we see here. We see a tree climber. And you wouldn't expect a tree climber out of someone who has social status, would you? Someone who's got the protection of all of Rome behind him, who's wealthy. But he is, he's a tree climber. I would, I would encourage us to lift our eyes this week and look for those who are climbing trees, who have a certain air of desperation. They're the ones that are going out on a limb, pun intended, right, to see or ask questions. Do we note the people that are asking questions? Maybe they're, they would be facing a certain amount of desperation, illness, job loss, right? Uh, alienation relationally, marital alienation, or kids, very common, feeling disassociated from kids. These often force us up a tree. And we're looking to see who's got answers because we come to that point where what we thought would fill us and provide for us hasn't. That's Zacchaeus' experience. And his is, his is a wealth issue, but we're, you know, whatever your besetting sin is, we all have those sins, right, that we have to deal with over and over and over. Those are called besetting sins. The sins that, um, that are our favorites to turn to. As some, it's credentials. We want uh, people to look up to us, some it's sexual experiences or relationships or whatever it may be. So yours may not be money, very common in DuPage County, but we're all tempted to put something on or someone on the throne of our lives before God, besides God. Zacchaeus apparently so moved uh, by the crowd's assessment of who he is, Jesus has gone to to eat at the home of a sinner. He's so moved by this accusation. Again, he doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't offer reasons. Well, you don't understand when I was a young boy, the Romans, they forced me into this. You know, he doesn't offer any of that. He seems to own it. You're right, I am a sinner. So we get a, we get, he is a tree climber and he's at this point of humility as well, where he's ready to admit it. He says, in response, he says, I'll give half of my possessions uh, to the poor and pay back four times the amount that I've stolen from others. 
the Jewish law, interestingly enough, and everybody in Jericho would have known the Jewish law at this point. Zacchaeus certainly knew the Jewish law. It's interesting to note that the Jewish law didn't require giving, didn't require giving half your possessions, 50% to the poor. Jewish law only required 20%. That was godliness under Jewish law. Zacchaeus goes way above and beyond that, 50% to the poor. It's also interesting to note that if you had stolen something from somebody, reparations were, two, were twice what you had stolen. Zacchaeus offers four times what he'd stolen. 400% greater than what I'd stole, I'll give back. Well, Jewish law was only two times. So something's clearly going on in Zacchaeus' life. He's accused of being a sinner. When he hears the accusations, he doesn't ex excuse them. He doesn't offer reasons for them. He actually admits it. Those I've stolen from, I'll pay back four times. My life of extortion, I'm ready. I'm done with it. What brought this type of change in Zacchaeus' life? And I don't actually know what Zacchaeus was feeling or thinking uh, other than his change of behavior here. In other words, Luke doesn't say, and Zacchaeus was feeling very convicted. But I, it does, Luke does tell us how he behaves. And there seems to be a direct correlation to Jesus' presence in his home. Well, actually, Jesus seeing him that day as he walked through town and saying, hey, come down out of the tree. I want to eat in your house. A direct correlation between Jesus' pursuit of him, Jesus is eating in his home, and his response. There seems to be a direct correlation there. And we're left asking, what is it? And I think it's God's grace. I think it is the unmerited favor of God in his life. That's what grace is. Grace is the unmerited favor of others. In this case, God, God in his home. Can you picture, and I hope you can, God seeing you in your desperate situation and saying, I want to come into your house. God seeing you at the end of pursuing whatever it is that you're tempted to pursue. Maybe it's wealth, whatever you're tempted to make an idol of, sexuality, relationships, God knowing that about you and saying, come down from your tree, I want to be in your home. I want to be in relationship with you. Because we can certainly glean that from this passage. Because Jesus tells us he came to seek and save the lost. He's actually this morning seeking lost folks. I, I feel like sometimes when we read these stories, our imagination holds us back a little bit. Engage your imagination here. Imagine your point of desperation and God saying to you, I want to be with you today. I want to be in your home today. I know that what you've been pursuing isn't filling you. I can see that because you're in a tree and I want to care for you. That's grace. Unmerited favor. When a stranger, someone we don't know, we haven't interacted with, offers us a, a kind word, that's a gracious action. We haven't done anything to merit that kind word. They offer it freely. That's what Jesus is doing here. Zacchaeus clearly hadn't done anything to merit God's presence in his house. He had done a lot uh, to keep God out of his house. He had done a lot to alienate God. The crowd is spot on. He is, in fact, a sinner. He was an extorter of money. He was a thief, his own word, whatever I've stolen from others. 
He's keenly aware. He's done nothing to merit God's presence in his home, yet Jesus is standing there, and it changes him. That's grace. That's, that's the goodness of God. Romans chapter 2 says it's the love of God that brings us to repentance, which is what we see going on here. We see Zacchaeus in love with power, authority, we see him in love with wealth, and he turns from that, and he says, I'll give half of all that away. I'll pay four times what I owe back. That's repentance. It's the love of God. It's the goodness of Jesus happening through town and saying, Zacchaeus, come down. Let me be in your house today. That offer is being made to everybody in the room because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Grace, unmerited favor. It is the catalyst for salvation. In fact, we know that salvation is what's taking place here. Today, salvation's come to this house. So Jesus reads the repentance of Zacchaeus in love with money, power, security, social standing. He's been in love with that. And he turns and he says, I'm giving half it away and I'll pay back four times all that I've stolen. Jesus reads that repentance move as a work of salvation, a response to the grace of God. He says, wow, the grace of God's at work in your life. Today, salvation's come to this house. You've been so impacted by the goodness of God, you're turning from your sin. Paul talks about the grace of God as the catalyst, uh, the, the change changes in our lives. He says, for it's by grace you've been saved. It's on the screen there, Ephesians. Beloved verse, for, great, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's not something you do. It's the gift of God. It's something that he's done. It's this unmerited work, not by works, so that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. Salvation's a work of grace. Zacchaeus meets with it. He knows he's a sinner. The crowd knows he's a sinner. And salvation comes to his house. Greed. Greed is an aggressive self-interest, right? Paul Piff's research self-focus. Those that are greedy lose the ability uh, to act with compassion and altruism, to act ethically. Yet Zacchaeus is changed. This should give us great hope. Whatever sin we're tempted to put on the throne of our lives and serve, thinking that it's going to bring us life, we see here a story of one man who finds real life finds a relationship with Jesus and he gives up his sinfulness. He's done with that. I like to say that God's grace is greater than Zacchaeus's greed. And this should be good news for us all. Greed may not be your thing. It may not be the sin that you toy with. But God's grace is greater than whatever your sin is. God's grace is greater. God's presence his unmerited favor, his love for you, so motivating that you can say no to your sin. You can turn from it. You can be done with it. We know this to be the case because Paul wrote in the little book of Titus, it's called one of the pastoral epistles, he writes about how the grace of God teaches us. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It's appeared, he's talking about Christ's appearing, God's goodness to us, his unmerited favor, that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. It, what, what's the it? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. 
The grace of God teaches us. This is a powerful verse. It, could, it, should, it should be good news to us. The law doesn't teach us to say, a no, say no to ungodliness. Did you know that? All of Jericho knew the law. The reason Jericho knew the law, uh, we know Jericho knew the law because they said Jesus is going to be in the house of a sinner. They, they looked at Zacchaeus' life and they said Zacchaeus, is, he lives apart from the law. He doesn't live under the law. He's a sinner. Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner. Jericho, as a city, they knew the law. But it wasn't the law that taught Zacchaeus to say no to ungodliness. It was the grace of God in his life. It was the presence of God showing up. It was the goodness of God and the love of God calling him out of a tree and dwelling with him in his home. This is the entirety of the biblical narrative. The, we lost the presence of God in Eden and it's the entirety of the biblical narrative is God's work to restore his presence, to show us his grace despite our sin so that Heaven is ultimately the restoration of Eden, the new heavens, the new earth. But it's not simply in the sweet by and by, it's here now, giving us his Holy Spirit. While we wait upon the culmination of all history, we're not left, it's, it's not only God's goodness to us after death, it's God's goodness to us today. Today salvation had come to Zacchaeus' home, he said. Today, the presence of God can be with us through the Holy Spirit. Today, you can learn to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires by the grace of God, by the presence of God in your life, by the Holy Spirit. This is critical, I think, for, for the church generally, but for parents specifically. The law is good. We see that in the Psalms. Jesus himself says, not the least stroke of the law will pass away. The law is good. The law shows us our sin. It doesn't teach us to say no to sin. And I think the majority of our church is raising kids, which is a beautiful thing. But we need to be careful as parents. We don't hold up the law hoping it will corral our kids' behavior. We hold up the law because it's beautiful and it represents the character and the purposes of God. You should have no other God before him. That's commandment number one. You shouldn't covet. That's commandment number 10. You should honor mom and dad. That's commandment number five, right? The law, the, the moral law of God reveals his character and his purposes for us. It's, it's beautiful, but it doesn't teach us to say no to ungodliness. What teaches us to say no to ungodliness is God's grace, his presence despite our sin, his love for us, which is most plainly seen through Christ coming for us. Through Pentecost, the Spirit, the presence of God descending on the first believers. So that now we can say he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's always with us, even when we're sinning. So Zacchaeus changed. How did he change? He changed by God's grace. Interestingly, as an aside, Paul Piff notes something similar in his research he said that when wealthy people, and this was his term, have a psychological intervention, he said when they, when they see that they're not the center of the universe and that their behavior isn't serving them well or others well, 
that's what he called a psychological intervention, they'll start acting more altruistically. I find that interesting that, that what Piff found in research, we can read in the biblical text. Zacchaeus saw that his own behavior wasn't serving him well, the community well, that he saw that he wasn't actually the center of the universe, that there was a person in his house, God, in the flesh, who was actually the center of the universe. And so he takes his greed off the throne and he, he allows Christ to rule, Christ to reign in his life. So what's the invitation? Well, the invitation is multifaceted. For those of you that might be here checking out the claims of Christ, maybe you're not a Christ follower yet, you're here just weighing is Christ is who he says he is, that's very much Zacchaeus' place. Zacchaeus heard Christ was coming through town, wanted to check him out, so he climbs a tree. If you're a tree climber this morning, and we were all tree climbers at one point, if you're a Christ follower, then you are a tree climber at one point. If you're a tree climber this morning, the, the clearest teaching of the scripture is that Jesus is inviting you down out of your tree to be in relationship with him and to take whatever sin you've put on the throne of your life and push it off the throne of your life and submit to him. It's not a call to perfection. Zacchaeus didn't go on to be perfect in all his financial dealings. The grace of God continued to teach him to say no to ungodliness. But he experienced God's grace that day in a powerful way. God's grace is greater than your sin. And I've written a little prayer so that if you're a tree climber, you're up a tree this morning, and you want to express to God that you want to come down and, and be with Jesus, you want Jesus in your life, you want fellowship with Jesus, I'd encourage you to pray this little prayer. It's up on the screen, or it'll be put up on the screen here. It's not a magic prayer. I wrote it. It couldn't be magic. My, my effort here was simply to put uh, to words what I think is going on in the passage and what, what I remember praying, basically, as a child. I was 12 years old. If you'd like to pray this, let me encourage you. Uh, let's all bow our heads together. I'll pray it. If, if it's a first-time decision you want to make, just parrot the prayer right where you're seated. I'll lead us through it. God, I am a tree climber. I am in search of something that will fill me like my sinfulness has never filled me. Thank you that you sent Jesus to seek and save the lost. I am lost and want to know your grace. I want to leave my sin behind and trust in Jesus and follow after Jesus. Amen. Man, if you prayed that, I'd love to know it. I'd love to hear it. Just be fun to hear. Be, I'd love to, that'd be encouraging to me. Maybe you're with a family member and you want to share it with them, someone that you came with today. Um, just want to celebrate together. A really common question is, all right, so I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm wrestling with my money. A really common question is, do I need to give half my money away? We certainly need to stop stealing from people. If, if, we're, if believers, we're struggling with stealing. That's... But on that, giving half your money away, I, I, it's, following Jesus isn't that formulaic. It's not that simple. Jesus last week in Luke 18 spoke a very specific word to us, a very particular, one man, he said, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. It was a very particular word to that one man. This week we see one man who's uh, overwhelmed by the goodness of God say, I'll give half of what I've got away in, in, in order to follow you, to demonstrate your, my love for you and, and the grace. Following Jesus is about a relationship. 
And so maybe you've been following Jesus for many, many years. Word of warning to us as followers of Jesus. It's easy to put those idols back up on the throne. Whatever it is, money, sexuality, relationships, social, whatever you would be tempted to worship other than God. It's easy to put it back up on the throne. And I would just encourage you, maybe you're, you're following Jesus and toying with sin. Let me encourage you here. God's grace is greater than all the sin that we face. His love is more lavish. His filling more satisfying. I want to encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ, to say no to ungodliness and enjoy the grace. What I pray for my kids, and I say that you can, you can really tell what people believe because they, they're praying it for their kids. I pray for my kids that they'd know the easy yoke and the light burden of obedience. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There's nothing more crushing than sin. I'll give you rest. I pray, let's stand. I'll do that right now. Let's stand together. Let me pray for us and we'll close with a song. John Foster and I will be down front during the song. If you want a more personalized prayer, it'd be our pleasure to pray with you. Come on down while we sing. Let's bow our heads together. Father, you're good to us. Your grace, your love for us, it's rich and filling like none of our sin ever is. Thank you for the invitation of rest. And I pray that the people of Gloam Bible Church would know the easy yoke and the light burden of obedience. And we would throw off the heavy and crushing yoke of sin. In Jesus' name, amen.